You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 15th of December 2019 on Monocle 24. It's Sunday, the 15th of December. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Paul Osborne. Today... Let's get Brexit done. But first, my friends, let's get breakfast done. Thank you all. Thank you all. Boris Johnson celebrates his landslide election victory in the UK. But what does it mean for the country, its future and the post-Brexit relationship with the rest of Europe? We'll discuss that, plus we'll take a look at some of the stories making the headlines in the weekend's papers. All ahead in the next half hour, Monocle's House View, which starts now. Hello, welcome to Monocle's House View. Finally this morning comes an apology from the leader of Britain's main opposition party for its comprehensive failure in Thursday's general election. Labour suffered its worst electoral defeat in more than 80 years, and the Conservatives returned to office under Boris Johnson with a majority that is big enough to give him an extraordinary level of freedom to carve out a post-Brexit future for Britain in whatever direction he sees fit. But what does that mean for Britain's relationship with the EU and vice versa? With me to discuss some of the implications uh, that flow from the UK's election is uh, the journalist Marie Bion. Thank you very much for coming in uh, this morning. Hello. Um, you know, at a stroke at 10 o'clock on Thursday night with the publication of that exit poll, which proved to be pretty much spot on, that means the debate over Brexit is over. That whole kind of will it happen, won't it happen? You know, there were still people who were clinging to the idea that maybe this election might give you a chance to stop the whole thing from happening. And then by one minute past 10 on Thursday, it's like, no, Britain will leave the EU in about seven weeks' time. That was, uh, yes, that was, the, that was the message. And that's the way he's been uh, understood in Europe and in particular in France. Emmanuel Macron, who was at, the, at an EU summit, made a, a statement and he said that now the results are clear. Are we going to be able to, to go ahead? And uh, he was, there was kind of a side of relief in a way that uh, the, uh, the decision was as clear as that. Basically, a few months ago, uh, the, what the EU was dreading was a UK uh, led by Boris Johnson. That's something they were really dreading. Now Boris Johnson had been, has been in office for a few a few months, really. They know how it is, so they're not afraid of you know something they don't know. They know they can work with him, and now he has a majority, so they know he can work with they can work with the men, and they can work with the men who has a parliament behind him. So all in all, because they don't make any judgment on basically the politics of it, the EU is quite happy that basically things can go ahead pretty smoothly from there and should be anyway you know you mentioned Emmanuel Macron they're making a statement after after the election and I mean of all the EU leaders he seemed to be the one who was most keen to have this whole thing finished yes yes absolutely and that's why he's the one who basically made the big, biggest statement saying that it was a, a, a good thing in a way all the others basically just welcome also the clear-cut results and uh, and but some already voiced this concern about the fact that um, still, even with that bigger majority, it doesn't help the fact that we have a trade deal to negotiate that's very complicated. And doing that between February and uh, and and June, that's where we have to ask for an extension if we want if we want one, is going to be a very a very tall order. So it's not basically all you know happy thoughts and everything's going to be all right from now on. It's just that we can see a clear path. How long and how difficult this path will be, we don't know. 
know, but at least there's not, you know, so many branches branches hiding the path onwards, basically. Well, you, you mentioned there the, 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 the attention now shifting to negotiating this trade deal, a future relationship, rather than the divorce, as it were. Yep. Um, now, Boris Johnson is still saying at this point that he wants that all tied up by this time next year. Nobody in Brussels seems to think that's possible. Well, they're very doubtful because they know how difficult uh, um, you know, a trade deal is in general. The argument in the UK is that, well, it's not any trade deal because we really have a relationship. We just have to basically take what we have and uh, and pick uh, what we don't want and change a few things here and there. It's way much easier than having just a blank paper. That's That may be true or maybe there will be so many differences that it will be even harder. The idea is that we don't know exactly yet what the UK and what the EU wants. January is going to be used by the EU and the mem- and the EU27 to decide what kind of trade deal they want. So they don't know yet. They've been trying. They've been starting to think about it at this EU summit last week. But they decide for the strategy in in January. And of course, the big unknown is what is Brexit going to do? What is Boris is going to do? Of course. Uh, sorry. The the idea is that the EU. What Macron said very clearly is. If Boris comes to Brussels and says, well, we don't want to change a lot of things, it's going to be quite easy, basically, to do the trade deal. But if he wants to uh, divert from the 11 playing field, if he wants to uh, have tariff-free and um, quarter-free trade deal, but still don't uh, accept all the rules and regulations of the EU, that's going to be way more complicated because it's not going to be just about changing a few things on on, on a piece of paper. It's going to be a political um, discussion, a political debate that's going to be um that's going to be you know uh very strainful for the uh, for the EU and for the relationship between the EU and and the UK so as long as we don't know what's going to happen it's difficult to say if we we go, if we're going to to need an extension of course what we're going to figure out is the ERG anymore the very hard brexiteers and it's going to be able to go for perhaps what's a bit more natural to him being more you know center of the stage in a way being softer will he go for a softer brexit because uh, um, because he can now, we don't have to rely on this on on the hardcore. Or will he just basically go on uh, being the the you know the, the kind of hard Brexit he was because he still has Dominic coming as his main um, counselor and all that. That's something that we're gonna we're going to figure out in the in in the next few days. And that's something the EU is waiting for we, to know with bated breath because that's going to be also how they're going to basically angle the strategy when they talk in January. Um, you, you mentioned that, that that idea that maybe Boris Johnson is going to switch. And I know that some of the people around him have said, well, now that he's got this big majority, he doesn't have to be held hostage by the, mm-hmm. the hard right sort of pro-Brexit group in his own party. He is free to become that kind of small L liberal conservative mm-hmm. that we saw when he was mayor of London. But I mean, even if that's true, it's going to take a long time, isn't it, to heal the scars of the last three and a half years in terms of the relationship between the UK and the EU, not just in terms of that trade deal, but just in terms of having a relationship between a very large country outside the European Union Mm -hmm. and a very large trading and political bloc next door. 
Yes, that, that's why the EU is very adamant on this level playing field. So because Angela Merkel yesterday said we're going to have a competitor at our doors and we're going to ha- we're going to want to have a good relationship with them. And and uh, is that really possible? Uh, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, the the new newly elected uh, um, uh, head of kind of head of the EU in a way, says that we're going to have a sensible discussion and we're going to basically discuss as good neighbors and good friends. That's that's. That's the hope, basically. Yes, of course. Uh, but uh, you're right that it's not just going to be, you know, Boris Johnson coming out of the mist f- uh, with anything happened before before then. Uh, the country has been divided for quite some time. And uh, he is a politician that's a big unknown in a way, because we know he's, we are, the only thing we can rely on with Boris Johnson is that, is that he's, he's been at least unreliable until until now. He's been changing for, you know, many his stance and all that. So that's something that we don't know. And will he uh, basically want to be closer to the new um, the new electors, the new voters for the Tory party, m- meaning the former Labour voters, really want basically to adopt their very hard Brexit view as well. Because if I've, I've been to the North quite a lot uh, this last few days before the election to talk to, to talk with with electors, and they want they want a hard Brexit. They want something that's very a very clear cut, um, you know, uh, of. Cut, cutting the relationship with the with the EU and uh, will he basically be able to will he want to do that or will he want to talk to them about his vision of Brexit being different because the only thing is that Tories are still seen as a bit patronising and if he does that he might already lose the trust of the voters that he won just a few days ago. It won't matter because there won't be an election straight away but he'd be very wary not to alienate the new Tories, basically, he was able to gather in this election. And there are always electoral tests to come. You know, in in less than six months' time, there's local elections in large parts of the country Mm -hmm. that voted Conservative for the first time um, on Thursday. And Mm -hmm. so he will presumably want to keep that momentum going and try to increase the strongholds into local government. And at the same time, London has to elect a new mayor in May of next year as well, and that's currently held by Labour. Now, that's a London... Well, one thing that emerged mm. from this election, London is as, as steadfastly, solidly Labour as it ever was. And it, again, it just seems to prove that idea that it, held by people outside London, and I think inside too, that London is totally out of touch with what the rest, certainly, of England thinks. Well, it's it's a macro macro macrocosm basically London. It's there's so many people from all around the world, and uh, so 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 much uh, you know wealth in concentrated in one part that doesn't happen anywhere else in the in the country, even in the capitals of the other nations. So yes, London remains very different from the rest of the of the country, and the brand of Labour that Labour decided to go for for this election didn't work at all in London, and that's that's not surprise to to everyone. The surprise of course came from the north where we thought this brand of labor would be more interesting but you're right there are electoral uh, you know um, points uh, within the five years from now to the uh, next general election and uh, but there's always a way basically to say that it wasn't about brexit or this one is about brexit everybody's going to basically give the lecture they want on the uh, next uh, you know the next election that's gonna that's gonna happen and the i'm not sure i'm not sure how 
many elections there will be, local elections there will be uh, next um, summer in the areas that turn from red to blue? Because it's not everywhere in the country. Mm. So that's something that we have to, to look into. Well, uh, we will a little bit later take a look at how uh, the UK's newspapers this weekend have been uh, reacting and what inside information they've been getting on Britain's new government. But despite all this election chatter, there was plenty happening last week beyond the walls of Westminster. So to take a look at what we may have learned from the week's headlines, here's Monocle's Andrew Muller. We learned this week that the world may welcome a new nation in 2020. 928 volts. The 300,000 people of the island group of Bougainville, hitherto part of Papua New Guinea, voted for independence by a thumping majority. The referendum was technically advisory and non-binding, but as the United Kingdom has been learning these last few years, technically advisory and non-binding referendums have a way of acquiring a terrifying momentum. Thanks to the UK, however, Bougainville's people and politicians now have, as they face the task of negotiating a separation from a greater entity while maintaining decorum and dignity, a wealth of information on how not to do it. We learned that one pub quiz standard question has a new answer. The title of world's youngest head of government has been seized by 34-year-old Sanamarin as of Tuesday, the Prime Minister of Finland. Here's Monocle's Helsinki correspondent Petri Burtsov on Monday's briefing. Finland was, of course, the first country in Europe to give women the right to vote. And we've had both female prime ministers and a female president before. So obviously for promoting this image of a modern country, this is good. Among Ms. Marin's rewards was a dose of patronising counsel from the world's oldest national leader, Malaysia's Mahathir Mohamad, who is 94 and possesses views on gay people and Jews, which are several centuries older than that. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern reacted rather more humbly to being demoted to the world's second youngest female leader. She needs no advice. Ultimately, one of those issues when people assume, of course, because you're young, um, that uh, you're not bringing experience and expertise to the table necessarily. I see she's already a minister. She's already a member of a government. And all, all I would say is, go well. We learned that the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo and the 2022 World Cup in Qatar will not echo to the sound of the world's second best national anthem. Russia has been banned for four years from all major sporting events by the World Anti-Doping Authority, a response to Russia's Anti-Doping Authority having fiddled laboratory data. Russian athletes will still be able to compete if they've proved themselves clean, but will have to do so under a neutral flag. Russia, as is customary, denies everything. Here's Russia analyst Stephen Diel on Tuesday's Globalist. The extraordinary decision came in September last year when WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, showed, I think, a certain weakness in allowing the ban to be lifted as long as Russia then produced more results. And, but then what does Russia do when it produces the results in January this year? They're examined and they're found to, that they've cheated again.
We learned the specific identity of that proverbial unfortunate who is the someone who is always worse off. It is whoever is presently handling public relations for the Nobel Prizes. This week, they beheld the spectacles of 1991 Nobel Peace Laureate Aung San Suu Kyi appearing before the International Court of Justice to deny being an accessory to genocide and of five countries boycotting the award of this year's literature gong to Austrian author and Slobodan Milosevic fan Peter Hanke. Here's Monocle's Balkans correspondent Guy Delaunay on Wednesday's briefing. Six countries deciding not to send representatives to the ceremony is quite a big deal, really, isn't it? So we've got Bosnia, Croatia, North Macedonia, Albania, Kosovo and Turkey. So uh, the man who's currently holding the, the chair of Bosnia's presidency, Jelko Komšić, uh, said the award was an act of hatred against the relatives of victims and the genocide was rewarded uh, by Hanka receiving the prize. We learned, though it is uncertain when the knowledge may come in handy, how to start a fight in a Mexican art gallery. A fracas verging on an outright stramash, and described by some aghast observers as no less than a full-blown ruckus, erupted at Mexico City's Palace of Fine Arts over the exhibition of a painting depicting revolutionary hero Emilio Zapata, naked but for black high heels and a pink sombrero, astride a clearly excited white stallion. The work by Fabian Chárez prompted a vigorous exchange of views and indeed fists between a appreciators and non-appreciators of this kitsch subversion of the machismo with which Zapata is usually endowed. It can really only be hoped that Mr. Chárez's next project is a picture of Pancho Villa skipping rope. And a clammy and dank shroud of blame was lifted at long last from the reputation of the late guitarist Jimi Hendrix, who was finally exonerated of importing parakeets to the United Kingdom. A persistent rumour has long had it that Britain's population of invasive, non-native green ring-necked parakeets are descended from a pair released by Hendrix in Carnaby Street in the 1960s, when a man of his predilections might have believed this a groovy thing to do. However, boffins have looked into it and declared Hendrix innocent. Anxious listeners may at this point be braced for some variety of parrot-related pun on a Jimi Hendrix song or album title. Well, we've had our best people on it for some while, but it's not as easy as you might think. The Wind Cries Polly was about as good as it got, and that's far from a classic as these things go. Doesn't really rhyme, probably over-reliant on intimate knowledge of Hendrix's catalogue. And with that anguished resignation to the fact that Jimi Hendrix wrote disappointingly few hits with titles containing words that rhyme with beak, squawk or perch, for Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller, and there is this. Sunday morning on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. We'll take a look at the newspapers in just a moment. 
Why not give the gift of Monocle this festive season? Treat a loved one or reward yourself with a one-year Monocle subscription in-store today and take home the latest issue for free, plus an exclusive Monocle tote bag, as well as 10 monthly magazines and two annual publications direct to your door. All subscribers get a 10% discount across all Monocle shops, as well as our online store. You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. So, what are you waiting for? Subscribe in-store today or at monocle.com forward slash subscribe. Welcome back to Monocle's House View. I'm Paul Osborne. Still with me, the journalist Marie Bion. We're going to take a look at uh, this morning's newspapers. Let's start with uh, how the British papers react to the election. And indeed, many of the Sunday papers have some, I'll be honest with you, less than flattering photographs of uh, Britain's re-elected Prime Minister uh, as he heard the early uh, results. It's, it's, it's fair to say he's not, he, he, in, in the natural flow of celebration, he doesn't necessarily look absolutely photogenic. But uh, that is on the front page of several uh, of the, the Sunday papers. Um, uh, that, you, you're looking really at the one on the front of the, the Sunday Times. He basically looks like he's at a football ground and his team has just scored a hat trick. Yes, yes, and you can see his very dishevelled uh, suit being flung in the air from the passion of seeing the results and all that. And uh, yeah, he looks like uh, he, he looks like a Hulk in a way, angry Hulk, more than surprise Hulk, than a happy prime minister who won uh, a clear majority. So yeah, I mean, this kind of picture is always, you know, a bit fun. And that's why the Sunday Times have them front and back as well. If you just turn around on the end, just really the, uh, the end of the newspaper, there's a few of those pictures again. So I mean, that's, that's, a, full, that's a fun photo album in a way. And even the, even the title, Cripes, I've Won, is very, uh, you know, it, it's um, might as well, you know, let a bit of steam after all this, after all this. But the inside of the uh, paper is way more interesting than this, you know, these pictures. There's one story in particular that I found, find quite interesting. Um, it may be a bit of a gimmick, but it's about uh, Boris's babies. So it's not about his personal life. I was going to say. No, no. Are we no. finally finding out how many children he's got? <laughs> yeah, I thought so. When I saw the title, I thought, oh, maybe he's coming out with how many babies is God. But no, it's about the new intake of Tory MPs that are now in the in Westminster because uh, many of the MPs that are new, newly elected in the former Red Wall are young, um, less than 35, and they are locals. Uh, they have not been basically put there by the party like sometimes Labour did because they thought they were going to win anyway. But these are local people who are, you know, not privately educated, who are coming from a working class background. And that's one of the reasons why they've been able to win the votes, because on, on, on the spot, on the, on, in the constituencies, they are known as local lads. The, the word lads is very much, uh, very much used in the quotations in the Sunday Times. And um, they've been able to relate to, uh, to people. And these Boris babies 
are basically the new kind of conservatives that uh, Boris maybe would like to to see. Of course, they'd be you know trolling his um, his decision. He's gonna they they're gonna have to you know say yes to everything he uh, did. And just like what happened in France when Emmanuel Macron was elected, when this was this newly intake of never been politicians before arriving at the at the parliament, they don't have a lot of experience. They don't know how things work, perhaps, and they'll be uh, even more you know uh, easy to to fathom in the way to to fashion in the way Boris Boris wants so that's a big win for him but at the same time of course there's the electors the voters they want to have their own MPs and thinking that they are from the local local ground is very important the other thing is that uh, the paper says that we now have the gayest parliament in Europe because there's 24 of the new MPs who are openly gay or bisexual that's make it more than 50 in the all in all of the House of Commons and we saw some of the candidates kissing their 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 partner their same-sex partner when uh, the uh, results were announced so it's not the old grey Tory party uh, it's it's a different Tory party even in terms of the uh, social social issues so that's going to be that's going to that's going to have to be interesting in some way now similarly um the depleted number of labor MPs for the first time more than half of them are women um, those labor MPs are going to have a big hand in choosing who the next leader is, uh, that conversation's already underway. Yes, and you're quite right to say, it's the first time there's so many women in Parliament as well, so there's that's a modern Parliament in this way as well, but yes, in terms of the Labour, so the Guardian is doing a, a few few pages on that, there's of course an op-ed of, uh, by Jeremy Corbyn, saying that he takes part of the blame, saying that uh, the message was the right one, but it didn't go through and all that, so basically half of an, an apology, half-baked apology, uh, from Jeremy Corbyn, but on the same same page, you can see a few figures, and these are the people who might be the contenders to take the party over. Of course, we don't know yet, and no one has declared themselves. But we can clearly see there's one man, there's seven people on this picture, just one man, Keir Starmer. All the others are women, uh, some quite young. I mean, the oldest is Emily Fonbry at 59. The other all have uh, less or around 40 except of except uh, Yvette Cooper and what the um, what we hear now from the Labour Party is that we need to have a new leader and we need two things from this new leader we need it we need them sorry to be uh, a woman and we need them not to be from north of London that takes out Emily Thornbury and Keir Starmer who's both men and out of and and from north London but there are all the other you know the other people on the page are Rebecca Long Bailey she's the shadow business secretary very close ally of uh, McDonald's so from the Combinista branch basically Lisa Nandy who's from the uh, north of England who basically was uh, in uh, just wanting to uh, stick to the results of the referendum. She was a very critical of Jeremy Corbyn and the other and the other and and Keir Starmer also. Uh, Jess Phillips, 38, from the Midlands, and she's very vocal. She's a bit of she's seen as the wild card because she doesn't have a mouth in her pocket. I don't know if you say it in English. Uh, we certainly say it in French. She says what she has to say. Let's say uh, there's Angela Reno as well, the Shadow Education Secretary. Uh, she's not a Corbynista, but she's still in the uh, in the Shadow Cabinet. There's Emily. Fon- 
Thornbury, who's the Channel Foreign Secretary, and she's very much in favour of a, She was very much in favour of a second referendum, so that might basically be a, an issue as well uh, for her. And there's Yvette Cooper as well, uh, very experienced, the most experienced, basically, of those of all those women. Uh, we don't know how many of them are going to basically throw their hat into into the ring, but uh, there are some interesting, interesting, you know, profiles. The, the one that we thought we were going to be in the contention if uh, Corbyn had to resign was also Laura Pitcock from the north of England, and but she lost her seat. Uh, so that's very that, that must tell something about what the Labour wants. If they got rid of one of the you know close people for, of of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, maybe Rebecca Long Bailey, who's a bit of the same in a way, uh, should uh, think twice perhaps before before presenting herself. But what's for sure is that the membership of the Labour Party at the moment is the membership that was created by Momentum and when Corbyn arrived. So uh, the membership, we may may want to stick with a, with a very much left-leaning agenda. Whereas it is really something that the British people from the left in the wall are wanting. That's something that the Labour Party should think about. But with Jeremy Corbyn at the helm of, at the helm of this period of reflection, some people are thinking he just wants basically to make sure there's going to be a still very much left agenda before he leaves. Would he, le- if he left today, for example, he wouldn't have you know the hand on the way the uh, the discussion happens. So there's a bit of a worry, and already of course in fighting in the uh, in the Labour Party. I mean, it, it seems odd at the point at which that that platform has been rejected so emphatically for people to then go. No, what we need is to go further in that direction. It's, it's already gone so badly. Let's see how much worse it can get. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it, Corbyn says that he believes the, the 2019 manifesto and the movement w- behind it will be seen as historically important. Yes, maybe as a shift in the Labour Party if everything goes well, but not as something we should basically uh, go f- go towards more and more. Uh, there's there's the this idea that uh, all the people all the people ever wanted was this left-leaning government, and that Brexit and the media made it possible for it not to happen. That's exactly what Jeremy Corbyn said the night he was. Uh, Re-elected, but basically lost as the uh, as the leader of the party. So that's that's something that's going to be very much in the centre of this period of, of discussion. And it's that- odd, it's odd, isn't it, to have said, you know, and I think Jeremy Corbyn says this in one of his what have been construed as apologies. Um, you know, we, we have won the argument on so many issues. Those election results do appear to be a very odd way of winning an argument. Uh, we'll have to leave it there. I'm afraid, Mahibi, and thank you very much for coming in uh, this morning. That is it uh, for this edition of Monocle's House View. Our supervising producer was Ben Rylan. Our researcher was Tia Thomas Alexander. Our studio manager, Nora Ho. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Paul Osborne. Have a good weekend. <laughs>